0: Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg
1: So till now, the first 25 chapters Al-Tarebi spent explaining how Judaism is something that's very close, near to each and every Jew. Until Chapter 18 he explained, because we all have the ability of mind over matter and therefore we have our ability to concentrate and focus and meditate and reflect on godliness and because of mind over matter and mind over heart, the mind has the ability to stir, stir and awaken the heart. And Then, in, from chapter 18 through chapter 25, you explain that that uh, another approach that you don't even need the mind. You don't need to create this love. It's something that's innate. It's natural. It's inherent. It's our true nature deep down. Every one of us is born with a natural feeling and connection to godliness, and we respond. We naturally respond to godliness, and that's why it's very near and dear to each and every one of us. We just have to awaken and reveal this natural, innate, inherent love. Now, in the next few chapters, from chapter 26 through chapter 33, Al-Tarebi is going to explain how we can deal with certain obstacles on our path, on our road. Now that we already have a paved highway, we know how each and every one of us can accomplish, um, could live up to this uh, mandate that we should not only that we should do everything that's right and think and speak and act, think Jewish and speak Jewish and act Jewish and think and act in a way that's wholesome, but in addition also to do it with feeling with, uh, wholeheartedly. But now he's going to deal with things, obstacles that may pop up, that may obstruct our, our movement forward. And he's going to deal with two obstacles. One obstacle is um, laziness, depression which comes from depression and that is going to deal with chapter 26 through chapter 28 and then chapter 29 and on is going to deal with how do you deal with the clogging of the heart when you just lose interest and you just don't respond to anything any any spiritual stimulation but in the next three chapters, 26 and 27, 28, he's going to deal
0: with how do you deal with,
1: with depression? How do you overcome depression? Depression is the big no-no in Judaism, especially in Hasidic thought. As the saying says that there is, although depression per se is not a sin, But it could lead a person to where no sin in the world can lead a person. A feeling of worthlessness, a feeling of hopelessness, and just destroys any energy that you may have and any enthusiasm. And that's the biggest obstacle to serving Hashem. And that's where we begin, page 342. But this must be made known as a cardinal principle.
0: But this must be made known as a cardinal principle it is with the service of God just as with the victory over a physical opponent. For instance, two people who wrestle with each other, each striving to fell the other. If one of them is lazy and sluggish, he will easily be defeated and will fall, even if he is stronger than the other, since his laziness and sluggishness prevent him from revealing his strength.
1: In a battle, even if it's an unequal battle, it's a... We call asymmetrical if the weaker opponent is more eager is more enthusiastic, you know believes in his cause, and the other one is sluggish, yes he 's more powerful, brute strength, but he's sluggish. he 's sluggish there 's no interest, no enthusiasm doesn 't believe in what he 's fighting in, then the weaker hand could triumph over the stronger hand, so it 's not necessarily the one who 's physically stronger. It's the one who's quicker, who's sharper, who's more alert, who's more awake, who's more enthusiastic. And what's true in a wrestling match, what's true in the physical sense is also true similarly.
0: Similarly with the conquest of one's evil nature, despite the fact that the good nature is stronger than the evil, for as explained in previous chapters, quote, even a little of the light of holiness dispels much darkness of the klipa, end quote. Yet here, too, the previous rule applies, and thus, it is impossible to conquer the evil nature with laziness and sluggishness, which stem from sadness and a stone-like dullness of the heart, but rather with alacrity which derives from joy and an open, i.e. responsive, heart that is unblemished by any trace of worry and sadness in the world.
1: So he says, so too, in the spiritual wrestling match, in the spiritual struggle between the ego and the soul, although the soul is superior, the soul is stronger. Superficially it appears that the ego is stronger, but the truth is the soul is stronger, as we discussed earlier. A person's connection to the spiritual is much deeper, and a little light has the power to dispel a lot of darkness, the godly soul represents the light and the darkness just melts away (coughs) therefore even the slightest positive movement has the ability to overcome tremendous darkness but nevertheless it's not enough if you feel depressed and you feel worthless there's no energy what's the point? I'm worthless anyway my whole being is worthless whatever I do is meaningless a person is so down in himself that you feel worthless, it's pointless therefore you become lazy then you have sluggishness. Where does sluggishness come from? Sense of heaviness. It comes from when your heart is dull. Dull like a stone. Dullness is not necessarily depression. Dullness is you just you don't feel anything. You just don't respond to any, any stimulation. You're not inspired, you just don't feel anything. You couldn't hear less. Your heart is not moved. You can hear the most moving story and nothing moves you. And that leads to sluggishness. And if you don't care, so what's the point? Why? why? So there's no energy. There's no enthusiasm. And then it's impossible to overcome Yetzirah. In the next three chapters, he's going to discuss the first element, the first aspect, which is depression, which leads to laziness. So what's the opposite of laziness? Quickness, alacrity. A person is awake, and a person is inspired, and a person is excited, and a person is eager, and a person is enthusiastic. Whatever you do, you do with oomph. You do. You're present. You do it with pleasure. You do it with intensity. You do it with your life. You do it quickly, and you do it. You jump out of bed, and you do it, and you do it wholeheartedly, and you're present, and you're focused, and you're excited, and you're enthusiastic. Where, where does this come from? Which, when does a person have this alacrity? When you have joy, when you feel joy, when you're joyous, when you feel worthwhile, and you feel precious, and you feel the preciousness of who you are, and the preciousness of what you're about to do, and the meaningfulness of what you're about to do, and how meaningful it is, and how mean- then you feel excited, and the opening of the heart, he's not referring to here the, the opposite of dullness of the heart, here he's talking about joy. When your person is joyful, there's no, there's no heaviness in your heart. There's, no, there's not even a, a trace of worry. You're in a good mood. You know what happens occasionally. You <laughs> have a moment of grace. You wake up and you feel just at peace with yourself and love, at peace with the world around you. Everything feels wonderful. Everything feels whole. Everything feels great. You just feel it with every fiber of your being, every bone in your body. You feel great. You feel wonderful. The world is, you hear the music, the sun is smiling, it's a beautiful world, you smell the flowers, it's, it's, you just feel at peace, Everyone, everything is loving, everything is good. And then that lasts for three and a half seconds. <laughs> 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 and then that heavy burden, our natural state of anxiety, and uh, just returns. But is that unnatural natural state? It's not totally unnatural, completely unnatural only natural because we're used to it, <laughs> because it's more often than not. You know, it doesn't happen in a natural state because um, we forgot what it's like to be natural. It's those moments of grace that you re- really, you remind yourself of what it feels to be natural. That's how we felt as children. We were The world was pure, the world was innocent, we were pure, we were innocent. The world was wonderful, life was wonderful. No hang-ups and no... no Nothing was, the world wasn't so twisted and hung, it was just normal, natural. That is natural. Only saying that this is natural because we just used to. But there's nothing natural about it, it's completely unnatural.
2: But what about bad news?
1: Oh, that, that we're going to get to, that's a very good question. That, that's a very good question, that we're going to get to in a moment. That's how is going to explain, how do you deal with depression that comes from bad news? Or, let's say depression, because of something terrible that you did. You acted horribly and you feel horrible about yourself. Because you did something terrible. Genuinely terrible. Something wrong. Something harmful. And you feel terrible about it. You feel like a piece of garbage. How do you deal with it? That's a, that's a serious question. But he's saying that the, in general, a person's general state has to be, your heart has to be open. You have to feel, be joyous. And you have to be free, unblemished of any trace of worry. That should be the natural state. B'simcha, the the Rebbe would always say, B'simcha levav. You have to be with joy, and your heart has to feel good. You have to feel good about life. You have to feel good. Life is good. Life is precious. You're precious. Everything that we do is precious and meaningful. You have to feel eager about life. You have to feel good about life. Life is wonderful. Life is special. Life is precious. You have to look forward. A new day comes. The sun shines. A new day. Be ready to tackle the day. What an exciting day. That's the only way to be able to overcome the evil inclination. When you have that joy, which leads to alacrity, to quickness, then you can outmaneuver and you can overcome anything your ego will throw you or your Yetzirah will throw you. Then you can overcome and you can triumph. To win the war to win the battle so this is an essential element it's an essential element in a Jew's life to serve to be joyful feel good be in a good mood feel positive feel uplifted about life feel, feel joyful inside inner joy real joy not the artificial joy really feeling good wonderful life is good Life is precious, you're precious, your life is precious and consequential and meaningful and it matters and it makes a difference, how we think and how we speak and how we act and how we carry ourselves and you're ready to tackle life, you're ready to tackle life any challenge that comes to you, it's very important when soldiers go to battle that's why they have have, uh, musicians playing you're going to battle and hear the playing. It's, it's usually a very upbeat march and a triumphant march. Because it's important to go to battle. To win the battle, you have to be strong, you have to be confident, you have to be positive, you know. And then you can tackle whatever whatever challenges you can tackle and overcome.
0: As for the verse, quote, in every sadness there will be profit, end quote which means that some profit and advantage would be derived from it. The
1: question is, how can you say that it's an essential component of a, if your life is to be positive and to be optimistic and to be joyful and to have an unblemished heart without worry, without any sadness, when the verse states clearly, King Solomon, the wisest of all men, writes in Proverbs, chapter 14, he writes, that there is a profit to sadness. There is something good in sadness. So it's not all negative.
0: The answers? The wording, quote, there will be profit, end quote, implies that, on the contrary, the sadness itself has no virtue, except that some profit will ultimately be derived from it.
1: So on the contrary, King Solomon is telling us Sadness, per se, is all negative. But you can profit from it. Something good could come out of it. Sadness alone is no good.
0: But you can use it for something positive. This profit is the true joy in God which follows the true, i.e., justified, sadness over one's sins, with bitterness of soul and a broken heart which must come at specific, suitable times. Hence the, quote, "profit" end quote, of sadness is the joy that follows it.
1: Sadness is like a medicine.
0: It's like a poison.
1: You don't give a medicine, a poison, to a healthy person. A healthy person, you give bread, you give a bagel, you give fresh bread. You don't feed a healthy person, you don't feed them poison. But a person who's ill, a person who's not responding to healthy food, you have to give them a poison. The poison is to wake them up. The medicine alone is poison. But you can put it to good use. Sometimes a person needs that poison to wake him up. So too, there's sometimes that a person, there's a wall, there's a blockage between you and and godliness. You don't sense anything godly, you don't respond to anything godly. You feel dead inside You don't feel anything. You don't feel, you don't respond to godliness, you don't feel any love to God, and you don't feel any love to other people as well. There's no real connection. You don't feel any real connection to God, and you don't feel any real connection to other people. You're going through life, but you're like a robot. But there's no real love. There's no real feeling. You're just totally, completely self-centered, completely self-absorbed, and you have no attachment to anyone. No real attachment to anyone. No genuine empathy, a genuine love. And people go through their whole lives that way. So you're dead inside. Spiritually you're dead inside. There's no genuine love, genuine attachment, genuine empathy to another person. And there's no genuine empathy or love to Hashem. So you need something to break through that, that, uh, the iron wall, the iron curtain. Nothing can get through. So you need a medicine, you're ill. You're emotionally and psychologically and spiritually ill, scarred. How did you reach this state? If you started out as a child, you're innocent, because of all the sins. So because of all the sins, it, it deadens you, you become dead inside. And you create all these psychological and spiritual scars. This iron curtain that don't allow, don't allow you to access your nashama. To experience and to sense something real. You've lost your ability to feel. So you need a drug. You need something to wake you up. So then, when you have sadness and you have a broken heart, then that leads you to once again, you feel human again. You feel humane. You feel like a normal mensch. Before that, you were living in some bubble. You were so artificial and so surreal, and so unreal. Your whole life was surreal. Now you can feel again. Now you can feel, you can get in touch with yourself, with your real feelings. You can get in touch with who you really are, that innocent child inside of you. You can really ex- sense and experience it. You can love once again. So now, because you feel the pain, now you can feel the love as well. As the Rujan the Rabbi used to say, he says, There's nothing more whole than a broken heart. He said, There's nothing straighter than a crooked ladder. <laughs> The ladder is straight, you can't, can't climb it, you have to lean it against something. He said, and there's nothing uh, darker than, than white shrouds, right? A dead person is wrapped in white shrouds. There's nothing blacker, there's nothing sadder, more tragic than tragic than the white. So, yes, everything has to be whole. But what makes the heart whole? When the heart is broken. Because the person who doesn't have a broken heart has no heart at all. A person who has a broken heart can feel. Feels alive. Can love. Yes, you're hurting. You're in pain. You're troubled. You're sad. You're crying. Your heart is broken in a thousand pieces. But you know, now you can feel. And if you feel pain, you can feel sadness. And something bothers you. Then you can love, you can start loving as well. Before that you became completely numb. You're not responding to anything. You don't feel one way, you don't feel you don't feel anything. Nothing bothers you. The fact that you can sin and you can be so disloyal, disloyal to yourself, <coughs> disloyal to your true essence, disloyal to those around you, and it doesn't bother you. It means you're dead. It means you don't feel anything. You're completely numbed out you're in such pain that you're completely numbed out you don't feel anything when the pain penetrates the iron curtain and breaks through that thick and suddenly your heart is broken to a thousand pieces oh now you're alive now you're awake now you feel yes now you're feeling pain but right after that now you can feel love now you feel real now you can feel real love a real attachment so that's what King Solomon says the sadness per se is a medicine it's not a good thing and you only administer it at the right time just like medicine no one sits down to a three-course dinner of medicine you give it judiciously it has to be given by an authority. it's given judiciously you take it in a dose at the right time and that's it so too this drug has to be administered judiciously at the right time as you can explain elsewhere the proper time when you, f- you administer this drug of sadness, of having a broken heart. But it's not the sadness per se. The sadness per se is not good. But it's a necessary, it's a necessary drug. It's a necessary cure, medicine, for the illness. and it's uh, Because that leads to joy. Once you experience that brokenness, and you feel heartbroken, that will lead you, lead you to joy. That's the profit. Continue.
0: Why should this sadness lead the worshiper to joy? For thereby, through one's sadness, the spirit of impurity and of the sitra achra is broken, and so too the, quote, iron wall, end quote, that separates him from his Father in heaven, as the Zohar comments on the verse, a broken spirit, a broken heart you will not despise. The Zohar interprets the verse as follows. A broken spirit of the sitra achra is accomplished by means of a broken heart." End quote. Since sadness over one's sins causes the sitra achra to be broken and the quote, "iron wall" end quote, to vanish, it leads one to rejoice, as the Alta Rebbe now goes on to say, "Then the preceding verses will be fulfilled for him: quote, "Make me hear joy and gladness" Restore to me the joy of your salvation and support me with your generous spirit. End quote. This joy is the profit of sadness, whereas sadness itself is neither profitable nor advantageous.
1: In this verse, where King David, verse 51 of Psalms, King David laments about his supposed sin with Bathsheba, and he was very heartbroken. So he says that he's praying to Hashem, please return the joy, return to me that spirit of joy. And then he continues that through a broken spirit, through a broken heart, that's how I'm going to restore my joy. Because once a person once a person experiences that sadness, that bitterness that contrite heart, that brokenness of the heart, and you really feel broken and shattered, that leads to joy. Because once you break through the arrogance, once you break through the shell, the klippa, and the arrogance, and the smugness, and the self-complacency, and, and the artificial bubble that we create around ourselves, we create such defenses that we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable, we don't allow ourselves to feel anything. We, we are so protective of ourselves we don't allow anything that will God forbid make us feel uncomfortable or make us make us, feel, you know, make us love anything and we just we create this, this shield around ourselves so when you break through this shield now you feel broken hearted now you can feel vulnerable now you can love you can care. so that's the profit it's the joy that you feel afterwards your heart feels alive you can feel you can feel attachment you can feel connection suddenly you feel reality you feel like your life is real before your heart was broken your life was artificial you created an artificial life packaged very nicely very neatly like everything else today everything is packaged very nicely and neatly. but there's nobody home it's not genuine it's not real when you pierce through now suddenly you feel you feel alive life is real you feel connected You feel attached. You feel that life is consequent. Life is real. And it's meaningful. And it's worthwhile. And everything that you do really matters and makes a difference. You feel attached. You start caring about life. Instead of walking around with a sense of coolness and difference, you know, I don't take anything to heart. I'm cool. I'm detached. I don't let anything get to me. In the country. You live life. Yes, life gets to you. Life should get to you. You should care about it. You feel alive. You feel excited. So that's only after you break through the arrogance. You have to break through the arrogance. You have to break through that foolishness and that arrogance that we create around ourselves that doesn't allow us to feel anything. To feel humane and human and and attached and connected, and make connections, real connections between people and real connections between us and Hashem. Once you break through that shell, that arrogance, because your heart is shattered and broken into a thousand pieces, now I can feel, and I can truly live life, and feel that life is real.
0: Um, I see a lot of people who are very depressed, and often. They're very depressed because of things that have happened in their lives growing up, where they've been kept in various ways from the ability to make connections with other people. Either they get mixed messages from their parents or distorted messages or uh, broken homes. It's very hard for them to connect, so it seems, from what I see, it's not sinning so much as just not having gotten the wrong programming in order to make connections would allowed them to make connections. And it's only when they can start to unravel some of this stuff that they can start making
1: connections. You know, there's an interesting... Uh, what's the name of the book by uh, Camus? Um, Stranger. Stranger. A person who's completely... probably grew up in such a dysfunctional home, yeah. and he's completely uh, numb, doesn't feel a thing, has no relation to anyone, doesn't care about anything. And then decides for the fun of it or whatever, just because murder someone. And he still doesn't really feel anything. It's indifferent. What difference does it make? And then they sentence him to death. And the next morning they're going to hang him. And that night, for the first time in his life, he feels. He has real feelings. He feels like a human being. He feels. Suddenly it all comes pouring out, all that bottled up that he's bottled up all these years now suddenly he has real feelings he feels now so deep down we all have these feelings deep down we all have you know that innocence and no one can take that away from us not even our parents even under the worst circumstances there is we have there's something very real inside of us And um, it's a question of really accessing it, really a question of touching that place inside of us. How do you reach that place? By blaming your parents, just chewing over once again why and when and where, it doesn't help you. You're stuck, okay, so now I know why, okay, so it doesn't do me any good, it doesn't help How do you reach that? How do you get the dam to burst? How do you reach that place? Which is really bubbling and is seething with energy and is alive and is vibrate. it's there. It's just deep down inside of us and it's trapped. And the truth is that because they had this, sometimes a person feels in such pain, there's such pain that they just numb out. That's that's their, their a defense. Yeah, it's, it's, their, it's their defense. They, they feel so deeply. They're so sensitive and they feel so deeply that they just they just numb out the question is how do you reach that place deep down inside that's seething with feeling, that's bubbling, that's alive, that's real. So he says when a person has a broken heart, when a person feels broken, when a person, then you can crack through that shell, you can crack through the shell, then that inner purity, incense could emerge. And once you feel it and you touch it, that leads to joy. That leads to tremendous joy. Yes, it's very painful but it's also very cathartic. It's,
0: it's not blaming anyone, but it's seeing what the mis, uh, the artificial connections are, the wrong connections are that they make based on things. We're getting certain messages. It's not blaming them saying, oh, I got this message, and I went down this path, instead of seeing that I really should have gone over here.
1: But here he's talking about experientially. If a person is able to truly achieve a broken heart, That's what King Solomon, the wisest man, is saying. The ultimate psychologist says, if a person is able to experience a broken heart, and then you're able to crack through the shell. Whoever caused it, whatever. And then you're able to feel. And then you're able to feel alive, maybe for the first time in your life. And feel joyful. And feel how precious your life is. And how worthwhile you are. And how loving you? How how much you? How much uh, your your ability to give love and to receive love? It's two ways, because you're precious, and your life is precious, and you can give love and you can receive love. It's a two way street, and um, and you can feel attachment and you can feel connection, and, you can, and suddenly you can feel the love to Hashem and the connection to Hashem, which leads you to joy. Now you feel alive. I can feel. I can experience. I can live life for real, in a deep way, in a very real way, in a very personal way. But sometimes the only way to get there experientially is through, how do you crack through that, damn, defenses that we created many times as a result, as a result of all these negative Experiences growing up, we create this armor, this shield, these defenses. And the more we're hurt and the more we're scarred, we just created this, 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 uh, you know, this dam. And we don't allow anything to go through. So we numb out. We don't feel anything deeply. We don't care. We just cool. I'm cool. I'm detached. I'm cool. I don't feel anything. I don't care about anything. But that's not life. That's not a response to life. So, how do you break through? How do you get to that? deep place inside of us that place inside of us that makes life real it makes us real it's through a broken heart when something breaks your heart yes it's very painful that's why he says it's a medicine it has to be taken very judiciously but then there's the prophet. the prophet is that then for the first time you're able to feel joy real joy you're able to feel alive your heart is open without even a shred of, of sadness or trace of worry, a sadness. You feel the blessing of life and the miracle of life and the and the love of life.
0: Okay, you want to continue? This is the simple reason, i.e., apart from the deeper mystical ones, for the practice instituted by the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, of reciting this psalm containing the verses quoted above, after Tikkun Chatzot, the midnight prayer, before resuming one's Torah study.
1: So Tikkun Chatzot, this is one of the times that's designated to contemplate your spiritual state of being, or your emotional, psychological state of being as well. And it's a time to really feel to feel now's the time to feel a little sad about your life. Maybe you feel you feel terrible about, about where you're at and and um, this is the time because the time of TikNukhatse is the time when we mourn the destruction of the temple. And we realize that our problem, our dysfunction is really part of a bigger problem. The world is incomplete. The world is off balance. The temple is destroyed. Hashem is hiding. Hashem is in anguish. Hashem is in pain. It's not just I, I am suffering. The whole world is lacking. The moon is is, is you know, it disappears. It diminishes at the at, after the fifteenth of the month. It diminishes until it disappears. It means the world is not right. The world is. Is darkness. And so you connect your personal struggles that you're struggling with, you connect that with the, with the bigger picture, that it's not just I am suffering, Hashem is also suffering. So that's a time to really mourn over the destruction of the temple, and maybe and at the same time to mourn over my own personal destruction, of my own spiritual temple. I am not whole, I am not complete, I don't feel whole, I don't feel complete. I feel lacking. And that's a time to evoke this feeling of brokenheartedness, to feel (laughs) broken, to feel um, about your, your, your spiritual situation. But again, the point is not to dwell on this. The point is, that's why he instituted this psalm of King David, Psalm 51. Which, where King David speaks for all Jews, when a Jew thinks about, contemplates a spiritual state of being, how he's not whole, he's not complete, and, and it breaks your heart. And then you spend the rest of the night, once you do the Tikkun Chatzais, you spend the rest of the night studying Torah, studying Torah with joy. Continue. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, why, why is that a particular time? Why did make it? That's the time, during the, the, the middle of the night, that's the time it says Hashem cries over the destruction of the temple. You know, you're talking about the night. The night represents physical night, but also represents spiritual night. This is the time to lament about the inner night, inner darkness, spirit, the spiritual darkness. So it's very appropriate. You know, the whole heavens and the universe itself is crying over the the darkness and the destruction and the... Uh, so it's a time also. This is something that great... This was never a universal thing. Great Jews, who was more prevalent in previous generations, would wake up at midnight. They would go to sleep right after they finished evening service. had a dinner they would go to sleep and they would wake up at midnight and be up the rest of the night they would sit down on the floor and lament the destruction of the temple they would cry and then they would be up all night learning and um you know there are a half a handful of jews that still still do it today but it was much more prevalent um, it was much more prevalent in the older generation and the previous generations and uh you know our generation, our approach to Hashem, is through joy, more through joy, because when you cry, if the crying is genuine, then your crying is welcome. When your friend is crying and you 're crying with them, if you 're crying genuinely, then it 's very helpful to your friend, and your friend appreciates it. but if it 's crocodile tears, then get get out of it please. what are i 'm crying, my heart is broken, and you 're pretending to cry you 're pretending to empathize with me. You do more damage than good. <laughs> it's counterproductive. So, Tikkan Chatzos is a time when Hashem is crying. So when a Jew really means it, and he's brokenhearted, he's brokenhearted, that the fact that we're in exile, the fact that God is in exile, the fact that the Jewish people are in exile, the fact that the whole world is in exile, and he means it, and it bothers him, it really troubles him, and he's crying, lamenting over his own personal spiritual destruction, then your tears are, are precious. Those tears are extremely precious. Hashem counts every tear. Where you shed a tear for the destruction of the temple, for the fact that we're in exile, a spiritual exile, that the world is so out of balance, it's so upside down, and it bothers you. It genuinely bothers you. Those tears are very precious. But you have to mean it. So the olden generations, people were more genuine, people were more authentic, people were more in touch with themselves. So it was very precious. So yeah, it was much more prevalent for Jews to wake up in the midnight. Our generations, you know, we're not so deep, we're not so genuine, we're not so authentic, we're quite superficial. But with joy, with joy, joy breaks through all barriers. Joy, it doesn't matter, authentic. I think you, when you're joyful, when someone sees a smiling face, you're always welcome. You see a happy face, a smiling face, you're always welcome. So when Hashem sees a Jew is smiling and happy and dancing and joyful, that's always welcome. That's much more, it's like the story of the Balshamtu. It was um, after Yom Kippur, and you know, custom is to sanctify the new moon right after Yom Kippur. And the um, Bals- <laughs> Balshemtiv very much wanted to sanctify the new moon after Yom Kippur, but it was very cloudy outside. And uh, the Balshemtiv went looked outside, and he saw there's no moon. He went to his room, and he tried mightily, as only the Balshemtiv could, trying to storm heaven and earth to accomplish a miracle that the, the clouds should disperse and he should be able to see the moon and uh, he should be able to sanctify the new moon. The night of Yom, after Yom Kippur. Nothing doing. The clouds were as thick as ever. Meanwhile, the students are very excited. They just spend the Yom Kippur with their Rebbe, with their master, the Baal Shemta. They were so excited and so invo- overwhelmed by everything they've seen and witnessed and experienced that they, after Yom Kippur... It was comforting that Hashem had forgiven them for all the sins. They started dancing. And they were very bold. You know, when you dance, you break through all barriers. They got very excited. They were bold. They pushed their way into the room of the Baal Shemteh without asking permission. And they danced and they dragged the Baal Shemteh to dance with them. And as they were dancing, the moon appeared. And the Baal Shemteh says what I couldn't accomplish through tears, and through deep, intense meditation and all the powers of the Baal you can imagine, the powers of the Baal Shem the Yom Kippur. Is, I couldn't accomplish the joy, the dancing, the joy. They were able to break through all barriers and they were able to accomplish it. So our weakness is also our strength. Our weakness that we're much more superficial than our ancestors and not as deep and not as genuine, not as authentic and not as intense. It's also our advantage, because we have to approach it with joy. When you approach Hashem with joy, you can accomplish a lot more with joy than you could with sadness. Because if it's sadness, it has to be genuine. If it's joy, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Show a happy face and, and be good, and, that's, and that's, that gets you into the door. So, But this was a custom. They used to Many Jews used to wake up, Tikkun Chatzais, to uh, lament and mourn the destruction of the Temple, the fact that the Jewish people are still in exile, the fact that God is in exile, the fact the whole world is in exile, the whole universe is in exile. Instead, we have the concept of Kshish when you go to sleep at night, before you go to sleep, you say the Shema. So when you say the Shema, just like before a person passes away from this world, the last words on your mouth, on your lips, is the Shema, because it's a time to make um, to assess your life, your whole life, flashes before you, and it's time to make uh, an assessment. How did I live my life? Was it, am I in the black? Am I in the red? Uh, this is before the end, before you make the transition to the world of truth. Um, so in a miniature way, every night is a time to make an assessment. How did I live this day? This day is passing. This will never be. This day will never come back. I had 24 hours. I whatever it was since I was awake. This day is gone. How did I live the day? Was it meaningful? Was it, was it a purposeful day? Was it a good day? Was it, was it a wasteful day? It was an empty, superficial day. The difference is that when you make the ultimate assessment at the end of your life, that's it. You're leaving the marketplace. You're retiring for good. There's no coming back. The good news is when we go to sleep, tomorrow's a new day. <laughs> So, but at a miniature level, it's a time to close the day, close the books in the day. Um, if it's difficult to do it every night, you do it at the end of the week, Thursday night. Time to make an assessment, You're getting ready for Shabbos. Especially if you, especially if you can't do it every week, you do it at the end of the month, before Rosh Chodesh, the night before Rosh Chodesh, you have to close the books on this month. You know, it's very difficult if you're going to leave off, all your, if you're going to push off all your accounting for the end of the year, it's very hard to do an accounting. You know, at the end of the year, who remembers what happened <laughs> twelve months ago? The wise thing is, you close your books every month. Every month you close your books. You know, it's easy to remember. It's fresh. You can take care of it. You can deal with whatever needs to be dealt with. You close the books. You move on. So that's called Yom Kippur cutting. The small Yom Kippur, the day before Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur cutting the night before. And of course, then you have the end of the year, before our spiritual tax tax deadline. Our spiritual April 15th is, is Rosh Hashanah. So you have the month of Elul, and then Slichas is the time to uh, do some soul-searching and, and assess your books, your spiritual books. Take stock. Before the new year, take stock of what's important to me, what's not important, and that I value the things that are important, that I spend time in the things that are important to me, or that I neglect the things that are important to me, and I just spend time in things that are really superficial and empty and meaningless. So this is a time when you have to this is a time for sadness. These are the appointed times. Either tikkun chatsois or the end or right before you go to sleep, or the end of the week, or the end of the month, or the end of the year. These are the appointed times when you have to do a little soul searching and then be sad. You should feel broken. You should feel your heart should be shattered in a thousand pieces. If you feel horrible and miserable and feel, where's my life going and look who I am and what am I doing with my life? And why am I just wasting and 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 I feel worthless, miserable, okay, listen. This is the time. It's an appointed time. It's a dose. It's a judicious dose. And it's only, the profit is where it leads to. What does it lead to? It
0: leads to joy. Continue. Reciting this psalm, containing the verses quoted above, in order that one should study with the true joy in God, that succeeds the remorse of Tikun Chatzot. Such joy is of a greater quality than joy which is not preceded by sadness, similar to the distinctive quality of light which follows darkness. As the Zohar comments on the verse, quote, "...and I, King Solomon, saw that wisdom surpass foolishness as light surpasses darkness." End quote. Note there, and this will suffice, for him who understands. The Zohar asks, does it take a Solomon to see this? And it answers that the intention of the verse is that just as darkness contributes to light, for we cannot truly appreciate light unless we have experienced darkness, so, too, does foolishness contribute to the appreciation of wisdom. Similarly, in our case, one's earlier sadness adds strength to the joy which follows it and this is the prophet of sadness. Sadness itself, however, is a hindrance in one's service of God.
1: Solomon says that joy is superior to sadness, like light is superior to darkness, and wisdom is superior to folly. So obviously, obviously light is superior to darkness, and joy is superior to sadness, and wisdom is superior to folly. So he answers what King Solomon is saying. And this is the brilliance of King Solomon. King Solomon is pointing out to us that the light, he's not talking about light versus darkness. He's talking about light per se versus a light that comes from the darkness. Look in the words, the wording of King Solomon. King Solomon says, When the light comes from the darkness versus light that comes without darkness. A person who grew, grew up in light, if it's light, then you don't appreciate it, take it for granted. You find yourself lost in the forest and it's pitch black and there's no light around and you hear howling animals and, and you're terrified and suddenly you see a drop of light, wow! Now you appreciate the light, and the light that comes out of the darkness. is so much more precious than the light that comes, comes without darkness. So on a simple level, it's because you appreciate the light. When the light comes from the darkness, you appreciate it. If there's no light, there's no darkness, you don't appreciate it, take it for granted. But when the light that comes from the darkness, like a person who's born rich, or a person who grew up poor, and with Hashem's help, they became wealthy. Could Could you compare the two? Someone who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Who never experienced any lack or any want, doesn't appreciate it. He'd even be spoiled, versus a person who appreciates it because he grew up with nothing. So there's a tremendous advantage, wisdom. A wisdom that comes from a person who didn't have any advantage Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, at the age of 40 was a simpleton, he hated, despised the uh, wise men. And then from out of this background came Rabbi Akiva. You can imagine the appreciation and the the depth of the appreciation. It's a different type of light. It's a different type of wisdom. So it's not only that you appreciate the light more, but it's actually the light itself is superior. When the light comes through overcoming the darkness and suppressing the darkness, it's a different quality of light. As the Medrash says, where does a person see from? A person sees from the black of the eye. It's out of the darkness comes light. When the darkness itself is transformed and you break the darkness, and by breaking the darkness you, you reveal the light, it's a different quality of light. The light You can't compare the two lights. Not only it's the same light, but you appreciate the light more. It's a deeper, you discover a deeper quality in the light. You discover a deeper quality in the wisdom. In heaven, where all there is is wisdom and everything is transparent, you don't need faith in heaven. You can't compare that to the wisdom that we have in this world. When a person has to overcome all the challenges, you have to overcome the foolishness, and you have to break through the foolishness to come to that clarity, to come to that wisdom, that knowledge of Hashem, it's a different quality. It has a different depth to it. It's, it's qualitatively different than the light that was never challenged, the light that never had to pierce through the darkness. A person who never, had, never experienced sadness, everything is positive, They're from this think-positive school. Everything is positive. Always positive, positive, positive. It's wonderful. But a person who never experienced darkness, a person who never experienced sadness, a person whose heart was never broken, whose heart was never shattered, doesn't really know the real meaning of joy. It's only when you went through that experience and your heart was broken to a thousand pieces, then the profit that comes out of it the joy that comes as a result is so much deeper, so much richer, so much more intense. It's like a difference between rain and, and uh, spring water. Spring Rain comes directly from heaven. Spring water is much richer. Richer in minerals, much more life-sustaining than rain. Why? Because the spring water has to go through the dirt, has to push its way through the dirt. When you have to work your way through the dirt, it cleanses it, and the water becomes so enriched, it's a whole different quality to it. Certain things, rainwater is not enough. In Allah, the Torah says you have to dip, you need living water. Mayim Chayim, living water is, is spring water, not rainwater. For the red heifer, you need spring water, not, not, uh, not rainwater. Mikvah is not enough. It has a deeper, richer quality to it. And that's the story of the soul. The soul in heaven, it's all bliss. It's all light. Everything is wonderful. Everything is blissful. Everything is light, illumination. There's no darkness and no shadows. When the soul comes down into this world and there's heartbreak and there's heartache and you have to go through that experience, the nesham the soul is that much richer, so much deeper, more intense and richer. So the quality of the joy that comes as a result of the sadness, is much deeper and much richer and this is the profit that he could only achieve through through going through the experience of the sadness and that's what King Solomon is telling us the same King Solomon is telling us that the the uh, superiority of light that comes after the darkness through the darkness by walking through the darkness so too the joy the joy, this is the prophet that comes through the sadness. When the prophet comes as a result of the sadness, after the sadness, it clears your heart, and you feel so alive after this. You feel so appreciative and alive, and you feel so connected, that the joy is, is beyond someone who never, who never went through this experience. And then he says,
0: Furthermore, the verse states explicitly Because you did not serve God your Lord with joy, therefore you will serve your enemies. And everyone is familiar with the explanation of the Arizal on this verse.
1: The simple explanation of the verse is that Hashem is, in in Deuteronomy, Hashem is telling the Jewish people that all these terrible calamities will befall on the Jewish people. Why? Because you're not serving your God. You should have served your God because you had good times. God gave you good times. And yet you didn't serve your God. And that's why all these calamities were falling. The Arizal says, no, that's not the explanation. The r- proper reading is, you did serve your God. You did everything that's right. You were moral, you were ethical, you did everything that's right. But the only thing that was lacking is the joy. You serve God, but you didn't serve God with joy. And for that alone, for that alone, all these terrible calamities are going to befall you. This is actually not a novel interpretation of Darizal. The Rambam, Maimonides explains the verse this way. Very Hasidic uh, interpretation, but that's how Maimonides explains this verse. The novelty of Darizal is that Darizal says that this is what the verse means. He didn't serve Hashem. You served Hashem. But he didn't serve Him with joy. The only thing that was lacking was no joy. He says, Mei koil." Koyl. koil. Arizal explains, and this is what he adds to the mother's explanation, that the joy of serving Hashem should have given you more joy than anything in the materialistic world. Imagine how joyful you would have felt if suddenly. Suddenly, <laughs> you, you, you got, you discovered you're worth $50 billion. You're the wealthiest person in this world. Imagine how you would feel—feel feel pretty, pretty nice. Imagine how much good you can do. How many yeshivas, how many chabad houses, how much, how many people you can help. <laughs> well, any joy, any joy that the most anything materialistic can give you—the joy of feeling close to Hashem, the feeling connected to Hashem—that should have given you more joy. Because the fact that you have a connection to Hashem, that, that should give you joy. In other words, you can technically do everything that's right. You buy the books. You're doing everything that's right. You're covering all your bases. You're acting right. You're doing appropriately. You're not doing anything wrong. You're acting morally, acting ethically. You're following the Torah. But there's no joy. What does it mean there's no joy? It's not personal. There's no connection. You couldn't care less. You're doing what you have to, it's an obligation. You know you know your responsibilities, you're mature, you're responsible, you do the right thing. You know there are consequences, you're going to have to answer for your actions. I want to play it safe, I'll do the right thing. But there's no personal connection. There's no joy. It's an essential part of serving Hashem. It's not mechanical, it's not rote, it's joyful. It's a celebration. You're doing a mitzvah, Yes, you, you, it's, it's celebrating them, your marriage to Hashem. It's celebrating your connection to Hashem. Every time you do a mitzvah, you say, Asher kiddushanu with iso. Kiddushonu, the Rebbe will say later in Tanya, comes from the word kiddush in marriage. It's a like, man, I'm celebrating my marriage. Why am I all dressed up? Why am I excited? It's a Wednesday afternoon because, what do you mean? I'm marrying Hashem? I'm married to Hashem? I'm all excited. Every time you do a mitzvah, you wash your hands, I'm doing a mitzvah. Asher kiddushanu b'mitzvah you're making a blessing. It's a marriage. So there's an excitement, there's a personal connection. And then even if you fail uh, once in a while, because you're human. And inevitably you're going to fail. Inevitably you're going to take one step back. But there's a connection. There's a personal connection. There's a joy. Joy tells me that there's a connection. But if a person goes through life and they're miserable, there's no joy, there's no passion, there's no smile. On Simcha's story, you have to pinch the cheeks to get a smile. So then, then it's external it's superficial the main ingredient is lacking it's like I'm, going, I'm doing everything that's right I'm telling the joke I'm missing the punchline I missed what it's all about this is a marriage this is real there's a connection Hashem loves us and we love Hashem it's a, it's a, and that's why we're doing the mitzvot why are we doing the mitzvot why are we doing 613 mitzvot we're doing it because there's a marriage there's a connection that goes without saying. That, that's, the underlying, that's the underlying motivation behind everything. It doesn't have to be spelled out. That goes without saying. How do we know that there is this connection? When there's joy. Joy mm. is something intangible. It's not something tangible. It's not by the books. Technically, where does it say have to be joyous? It says I have to do the right thing. So it's enough that I do it. Who says it has to be beautiful? or who says it has to be nice? Who says, I just do the right thing. That's all that's expected of me. And I'm doing everything perfectly by the book. But you missed the whole boat. You missed the boat. You missed the whole point. You're forgetting what this is all about. Why, do you, why are you doing all 613 minutes? Because it's a marriage. It's a relationship. It's a total connection. Where is that expressed? That personal connection? If you do the mitzvah with joy. When you do the mitzvah with joy, you're excited. I'm davening to Hashem, I'm talking to Hashem, I'm talking to my beloved. I'm doing a mitzvah. I'm doing His wish. I can do something for Him. Getting to duck, then it's a lie, then it's real. But if that essential ingredient is lacking, and if, if being close to Hashem doesn't give you more pleasure than anything materialistic, the biggest success, imagine you had everything good, you were blessed with everything materialistic, everything you wish for, you were blessed with wealth and success and money, power, fame, everything, put it all together if being close to Hashem doesn't give you more joy than all of the materialistic pleasure put together, then you miss the whole point. You miss
0: the both.
1: Then what's this all about? And that's what the, the Harizal says. This is what the Torah is telling us. That even if you're doing everything that's right, but you're lacking in the joy, for that alone, if it's not personal, there's no personal connection, then as a consequence all these calamities will befall you. Because Hashem is interactive. There's a personal connection Hashem draws closer to us. If we feel close to Hashem, if we celebrate our relationship to Hashem, Hashem celebrates our relationship with us in an overt way. The relationship is there, whether we celebrate it or not, whether we appreciate it or not. But if it's not overt by us, we don't feel it and we don't experience it, And to us it's just rote and mechanical and an and obligation joyless, passionless, then Hashem responds in kind. Then Hashem's joy is withdrawn and hidden and concealed. And as a result, as a consequence, all these calamities will befall the Jewish people. Follow the, uh, continue, the verse reads.
0: The verse reads, quote, Because you did not serve God your Lord with joy and gladness of heart from an abundance of everything good, end quote. The simple meaning is, quote, when you had an abundance of everything, you did not serve God with joy. End quote. This meaning is borne out by the context of the following verse You will serve your enemies in hunger, thirst, and nakedness, and in want of everything. But the Arizal interprets it thus quote, You did not serve God with a joy greater than that caused by an abundance of everything. End quote. We see from all the above the importance of serving God joyfully. Yet, many things in one's life, both physical and spiritual, may cause him sadness. The Alter Rebbe now goes on to propose means of combating this sadness, so that one may always be joyful.
1: This was actually one of the names given to the Hasidim. The Hasidim initially, before the name Hasidim stuck, they were called the Joyous Ones. This was the mark of a Hasid, a student of the Malshamitev. You can tell he was a chassid because a chassid is joyful. They used to joke that a chassid and tishuba is more joyful than some people and some kastirah. <laughs> it's just an inner joy and an innate joy. Depression, sadness, was a prohibition for the chassid. It was it was the worst thing. Sad, dejected, depressed. Um, you know, we're we're we're. Sadness could lead. There's no sin in the world that can lead. Because if a person feels sad, a person feels depressed because you feel worthless. You feel that I am horrible. I am horrible. I am terrible. It's one thing if you did something horrible, you did something terrible. Okay? I did something horrible, I did something terrible, so I'll mend it. I have to fix it. I have to take care of it. I made a mess. I took this beautiful carpet and I messed it up. Okay, so I have to go to the store and buy the cleaning agents and clean it up, clean up my mess. Try to restore the carpet to its, its, uh, be- its uh, beauty and try to even improve on it. But you do something, you're proactive. I did something terrible, I destroyed, and I'm going to fix. Depression is I am terrible. Not I did something wrong, I am wrong. <laughs> That's something you can't fix. So you're wrong. Whatever you do is, if I'm worthless, whatever I do is meaningless. I'm worthless. I'm horrible. I'm a failure. I'm a disaster. There's never been anyone as terrible as I am. The worst thing that ever happened, you know. And you know the way we treat ourselves, we don't treat, we wouldn't treat our own worst enemy. We only listen what we tell ourselves privately and quietly in our thoughts. We don't treat our worst enemies that way, but we beat ourselves up. constantly destroying ourselves internally and knocking ourselves and tearing ourselves up viciously mercilessly <laughs> you know just without Rahman. it's just totally destroying yourself not what that's totally counterproductive because that doesn't do anything okay so you're horrible and you're terrible and and you're hopeless and you're worthless and <laughs> and it's not true there's no such thing Hashem created you you're not worthless there's no such thing Hashem has a relationship with you. You, you can't imagine you worth. You have infinite worth. You're precious. Everything that we do has infinite worth and is precious and has such repercussions and implications, universal repercussions. So there's no room for depression. So depression is something that Hasidim ran away from. It's like, it's like spiritual death. There's nothing good in depression nothing positive. There's no redeeming fact in depression per se. It's a tool, sometimes like a necessary evil, a tool that we can use for something positive. When you have to crack through your arrogance, when you're so arrogant and so complacent and so satisfied with yourself and um, you're living in a bubble created this artificial reality, then you have to and feeling a little dejected, and feeling a little uh, brokenhearted, and feeling a little miserable, not feeling so good about yourself, maybe a little healthy. You know, you need a little dose to bring you back to reality, to bring you back down to earth, that down to reality, to feel once again, to be human and humane. Um, you have to break, th- break through that arrogance, that crust. It's really not allowing you to feel anything real. Depression per se was a real, um, by Hasidim it was like the worst thing, versus joy. Person in general always has to be in a joyful mood, positive, a joyful mood. Your heart has to be free, carefree. You have to, you have to uh, um, appreciate life. You have to thankful and grateful and excited and be ready to tackle whatever Hashem throws, whatever Hashem throws our way and be, tack- be ready to tackle the, the new day and um, this is an essential ingredient, a person wants to succeed in life, you want to be able to win this wrestling match you need this ingredient, you have to, you have to be filled with energy, positive energy enthusiastic, excited, eager, hungry, ready, open. When you're depressed, it just closes you shut, shuts you down. I think, maybe going back to what David said also, um, depression comes from subconscious. I mean, it's not like we're consciously becoming depressed. You're trying to tackle this problem consciously, with a with a, a conscious way of dealing with it. But uh, aren't you talking about two different things? If 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 you if you spend that time at night or once a week or once a month to assess yourself, that's a that's a preventive to depression. Or if you wake up in the morning depressed, you you put it off until you can the evening when you can deal with it. Uh, I'm not really sure which. It's like a chicken and the egg thing. Yeah. Well, there are, you're talking about like the blues, there are mm-hmm. moods, because we have, we have moods. You mm-hmm. have highs and we have lows, and everyone has their time of them when they, they feel up and at times when they feel down. And it's, you can't explain it, it is subconscious. And then you even have the other aspect he's discussing, which he's going to explain later, you have like a, a numbness of the heart. Which just comes and goes. At certain times, you just feel uninspired, nothing inspires you. And again, it happens to the best of us, it happens to everyone. You have a certain periods, certain times that you just, you're just uninspired, and nothing moves you, and nothing inspires you. And it's like a clogging of the heart. It's like all the spiritual arteries are just clogged, and you just your heart is, you don't feel anything. And that's part of life, and that's to be expected. And he's going to give advice later. How do you break through that? How do you, how do you deal with it? But what he's saying here is that uh, when a person, when a person feels sad in these appropriate times, and you feel brokenhearted, and you cry, and you're moved, and you're touched. So when you're touched and you're moved. Inside, then you're also able to also feel the joy and be touched and moved in a in a in a in a joyous way. You're you're talking about creating the situation consciously, right. and then right rectifying it, right. But then there is a just sadness per se, where a person just feels I'm horrible and I'm miserable, and that's ca- totally counterproductive. What does it do for you? So you feel worthless and you feel horrible. It just saps any energy. There's no motivation. Well, why should I change? What's the point? I'm hopeless. I might as well quit while I'm behind. And what's the, if I'm born in sin, so I'm, I might as well quit while I'm behind. I'm hopeless. I am wrong. It's not that I did something wrong. I'm born. My whole birth, my whole being is wrong. Well, if, if, if my whole being is wrong, then what's the point? Why even try? The whole program of Torah and mitzvahs is Torah says, no, do all 613 mitzvahs. You're not born in sin, you're not born hopeless. You're born good. And that, that's your true nature. It's everything that else that came later on. Maybe you grew up in a dysfunctional home, or, or maybe the choices that you made, whatever it is. But you, that's not your natural state. And therefore, with joy, when you're joyous and you feel good, if you feel good about yourself and you feel good about life and you feel a connection and you care and you love and you're attached, then you have the energy that you need to overcome and to confront whatever life, whatever whatever is thrown at you. You can, you can wrestle, and you can win. Otherwise, you, otherwise it's impossible. Unless you're enthusiastic, unless you're joyful, unless you're eager, unless you're excited, unless you're... If you don't feel good about life, then it's, it's, you can't. It, it, it's, it's, it takes a lot of energy. You need strength. To be able to have the discipline, and to be able to do the right thing, you need a lot of strength. As it is, it's a tremendous struggle. But if you're not enthusiastic and you're feeling lousy about yourself, you're feeling horrible about yourself, you know, then, then, then it's almost impossible. Then the materialistic pull is going to get the, bad, the best of you. because You don't have the energy to fight it. You don't have the energy to overcome You don't have the energy to do the right thing. It takes tremendous effort. It takes tremendous effort, it takes tremendous discipline, and it takes a lot of energy. So you have to be, you, have, you need your strength. You have to be ready. You have to be in the proper frame of mind. You're going to battle. Unless you march into that battle enthusiastically and confidently, trusting that you're going to win and then believe in what you're fighting with for, and with a proper frame of mind, if you walk into that battle, with a, you're finished
2: finish but if your sadness is brought about as a result of sin then you have to eliminate that before you have any chance of uh, That's you
1: what he's can't doing, okay.
2: overcome the sin by the joy
1: okay the next the next, uh, the, the next half of the chapter is going to address you ask both questions it's amazing First question he asked, in that order, first question he asked, what do you do if you have real problems? You have problems in life. What do you mean be happy and not be sad? Let's say, let's say terrible things are happening to you. How do you deal with that? That's what he's going to address first. And the second thing he's going to address, what if you really sinned? You really did horrible things. And you feel terrible. And you should feel terrible. How do you deal with that? How can you walk around joyful without a trace? of sadness and your heart is open and you're enthusiastic, a frame of mind that you're ready to conquer the world when you feel so miserable and horrible because of, the, because of the horrible thing that you did. How do you deal with that? That's what he's going to discuss uh, as we continue. Um, you know, I think we just have five minutes left. I don't think we should start the, the next piece because this really starts a whole new piece. So. I'll just open the floor anyone wants to ask anything. Uh, let me give
2: you uh, an example. Um, my son is uh, normally very upbeat, but they had a terrible situation happen a couple of days ago. They have a seminary, and six girls were crossing the highway, and two of them didn't make it. They didn't get killed. One, they weren't crossing at the lake, they were course. But the point I'm making is that he has been so, one of them is in a coma. Thanks. The other one came is already in, mending, okay? And these are what, 17, 18-year-old girls?
1: And one of them is still in a coma?
2: Yeah, well, he said today little signs of life were starting to appear. Mm. Uh, but I'm trying to say, you cannot, at that moment, make yourself joyful if... Uh, not that they're, blamed, they're blaming anybody, but it's
1: something that... Firstly, you have to be very clear. We have to distinguish. If something terrible happens to me, God forbid, to, to the person himself, then you have to accept it with joy, the Talmud says. But if something terrible happens to if another person, that you that's different. That you can't accept it. That has to trouble you, that has to bother you. You have to storm heaven and earth. You have to that has to bother you. That you can't accept it. You have to empathize with the other person's pain. Because God forbid there's no justification, no rationalization. When it comes to myself, I say, you know, listen, who knows? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> God knows, I know that <laughs> I'm getting off lightly. <laughs> or whatever. Or as we're going to learn next week, how do you deal with your own pain, or your own suffering, or your own, when tragedies happen to you, how do you deal with it? But another person's tragedy, God forbid, another person's tragedy, you can't rationalize, and you can't explain away, and you can't look for explanations. The other person, you have to empathize with that pain, and you have to be there with them, and you have to feel that pain, and still you have to, you know, that's, you know, you have to be totally, totally identify with them. You can't be joyful with that, huh? No. You can't be joyful. You have to be, it's, it's, it's a tragedy. You have to feel the terrible tragedy. So, this whole discussion we're going to discuss next week is only in relation to yourself. How do you deal with your own, with your own personal tragedies? But with another person, you can never allow to explain or rationalize or become joyful about it. The other person's suffering is unacceptable. You have to cry to Hashem for them and pray to Hashem for them and, and storm heaven and earth and try to, try to change it. But you can't be at peace when you see someone else suffer. Even our enemies. What? Even our enemies. Even, even your enemies. It doesn't give us joy. We'd rather that our enemies cease to be our enemies. Have a change of heart. It doesn't give us joy when we see our enemies destroyed unless they're implacable enemies, unless they're Hitlers or... Or a Mulik a Moloch is implacable. A Mulik is toxic. When when you have someone who's um, who's um, radioactive, so there's evil that's radioactive. When you have radioactive evil like Stalin and Hitler, then you're happy with their downfall. Then you rejoice with their downfall, with their destruction. It's, that's a Mulik. But that's that's rare. That's unique. Implacable evil. Implacable hatred. Absolutely, that's a rare thing. Um, in most cases, we would rather that the person should repent and have a change of heart, and should turn to be our, and should come our friends instead of being our enemies. So it doesn't give us joy when we see their, their, their destruction. Um, especially someone who's not your enemy, so you, it just bothers you. You should feel their pain. You have to empathize with their pain. But if again, if, if you're a joyful person, if you're a joyful person, that means you have the ability to bond, to connect, to feel other people, to make real relationships with other people. Real relationships with Hashem. If you have a real relationship with another person, and that person is hurting, you feel their pain. You're suffering. And when the other person is joyful, it's your joy. You're excited for them. You're happy for them. They're successful. Wow. Mazel tov. They had a good day. Excellent. They had a break, wonderful, break in life. There's a personal joy, it becomes your joy. You're happy for them. When they're suffering, you're suffering with them. Their suffering is your suffering. Because you're joyful, because you live life, you're for real. Your life is real. You have real connections. You're alive. Not everyone who walks into two is alive. There's more to being alive than not being dead. Being alive means truly being alive. When is a person truly alive? When they experience joy. When, when you look forward to every day of life. Every day of life is an adventure. And, and you feel and you experience every day of life. You feel connection. And your heart is open and eager and enthusiastic. And you know life is a struggle. Life is a wrestling match. But you're, you're in the right frame of mind. You're ready for life. You're open to life. You're ready for all the challenges then you can do the right thing. Then you have the energy and the strength to do the right thing. To be continued.